All right, if we could have everybody come in, I want to introduce our next speaker, who I think is familiar to many of you through his writings, as well as his magazine, the ministry that he founded, called Aerial Ministries. But our speaker is Dr. Arnold Frutenbaum. He is a Messianic believer and founder and director of Aerial Ministries, which is dedicated to evangelism and discipleship of the Jewish people. Uh, Arnold was born in Siberia after his father was released from a communist prison there. Aided by the Israeli underground, the Frutenbaum family escaped from behind the Iron Curtain. While living in Germany from 1947 to 1951, Arnold received Orthodox training from his father, who had himself been reared to assume Hasidic leadership in Poland, only to later lose most of his family and his faith to the Holocaust. The Frutenbrahms immigrated to New York, and five years later, at the age of 13, Arnold came to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Before receiving his doctorate from New York University in 1989, Dr. Frutenbaum earned a Master of Theology from Dallas Theological Seminary. His graduate work also includes studies at Jewish Theological Seminary in New York City and the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Having lived in Israel for a number of years, Dr. Frutenbaum's intensive study of the role of that nation in God's plan of world redemption has made him a much in-demand Bible conference speaker as well as someone who is highly respected uh, literally in the evangelical community. Arnold, it's a delight to have you here. Thank you, and let's open our hearts and Bibles as Arnold comes. Slap behind you. you know I don't want to step on that. <laughs> Boy, would I be in trouble, right? You're right. All right. <laughs> Anyone here not get an outline for study this hour? Raise your hand. Anyone not get one of these outlines? But everybody has one? There's a couple of hands. Just keep your hands up. We'll get them out to you. She's coming. I was admonished, admonished last night to be sure I tell a rabbi story. I won't tell you a rabbi story right now, but uh, it's a story that has a Jewish connection. It's a story of a Taliban terrorist running through the deserts, he's being pursued by the authorities, and uh, he's running out of water, getting desperate. He looks up and he sees what looks like it may be an oasis, and every oasis has water. When he gets there, there's no water, no trees, just an old Jewish man selling ties. And what he thought were trees was simply stacks and stacks of ties. So the terrorist asked him, don't you have any water here? The Jewish man says, well, I have no water, but I have all of these nice ties, only five American dollars each. Man says, I don't want your Western garments. I am an Easterner. I need some water. Jewish man says, well, like I told you, I have no water. But look, I have this nice silk tie, only five American dollars. The terrorist is getting angry. He says, I wish I had strength right now to take that tie, put it around your neck, and kill you. I hate Jews. I want to kill Jews. But right now, I need to reserve my energy. I need to find some water. Jewish man says, well, I'll show you I'm a better man than you are. You hate me because I'm Jewish. You won't even buy any one of my ties, but I'll show you I'm a better man. If you simply make a straight line through these sand dunes, don't go east, right or left, just keep going straight. After about a kilometer, 
will come to a crossroads and there's a nice restaurant there. It has all the water you could possibly want to drink. So go in peace and may God bless you. As he leaves, the man says, I may come back and kill you yet, but right now I need to reserve my energy. He's gone for a while. After a while, he comes back, but he's crawling on his hands, he's crawling on his knees. He has a five dollar in his hand, and he says, they will not let me in without a tie. <laughs> I have more. <laughs> if you look at your outline or on the overhead, the uh, introduction covers uh, some couple of things and altogether five different perspectives about how the modern Jewish state does or does not fulfill prophecy. In this introduction, we'll look at three of these views. We'll um, look at the fourth one at the bottom of this uh, page, the first page, and then I'll give you a fifth perspective, which I think will be more biblically oriented. Now, the first view has become dominant the very seeds of it are found in the second and third century became the dominant view of the church in the fourth century because of two key people of church history. One was a man named Origen who introduced the allegorical method of interpreting the Bible. And what was important for him was not the obvious meaning of the text, but a deeper, more spiritual meaning. And um, he, he applied it to the whole Bible, including the historical accounts. Then came Augustine, or Augustine, who took those same principles, applied them more specifically to prophecy and also to the people of Israel, and invented a brand new uh, system of theology called amillennialism. Well, we know from the early church fathers that uh, the whole church virtually until the fourth century was pre-millennial, meaning the Messiah will return and he will inaugurate the Messianic kingdom. They were not always clear what the role of this will be, but some did understand there will be a final regathering and restoration of the Jewish people. And um, with this new view, amillennialism, which means no millennium, meaning no literal millennium, no real Messianic kingdom, and he took the, the uh, thousand years of Revelation 20 to simply be a symbolic number between the first and second coming. So his teaching was we are already in the millennium. We're already in the messianic kingdom. And coming from a, from a Jewish perspective, I would have to say if this is the kingdom, we must be in the slum section of the kingdom. It's not anywhere as nice as the Bible describes it. And according to what they teach is that the only reason for believing in a little kingdom is Revelation chapter 20. And Revelation is a highly symbolic book and it's silly to build a major doctrine like the Messianic kingdom based upon one chapter in a highly symbolic book. But that's not really the um, basis for believing in the kingdom. The real basis has to do with two key elements. Number one, the unfulfilled promises of the Jewish covenants. And secondly, the unfulfilled prophecies of the Jewish prophets. The kingdom concept was always dominant in traditional Orthodox Judaism. Revelation as a book is not found in the Jewish Bible, so where would that concept come from? From so many passages that speak of such a kingdom. But this, this um, has been the dominant view of the church since the fourth century. 
And while uh, for a while it began to lose some of its bite, in the last few decades, it has risen more in popular among the churches, and still very a dominant view. Now the second view uh, is a different view than the first one. Those who hold the second view would teach that the, the, um, the someday those prophecies are not to be fulfilled allegorically or symbolically, but to be understood literally, normally, and therefore there will be a final future restoration of Israel. However, when they look at the modern Jewish state of Israel, that they, have a, they have a great difficulty of fitting how the modern Jewish state happens to be able to fit in the realm of Bible prophecy. And therefore they conclude that the modern Jewish state does not fulfill any specific prophecy because there's no such prophecy of the modern Jewish state. Let's look at three examples with specific passages they have a difficulty with. Turn first of all to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 30. The book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30. Look at verse 1. Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verse 1. And it shall come to pass, when all these things shall come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, you shall call them to mind among all the nations, where the job your God has driven you. And shall return unto Jehovah your God, and shall obey his voice according to all that I command you this day, you and your children, all your heart and all your soul, that then Jehovah your God will turn your captivity, have compassion upon you, and will return and gather you uh, from all the peoples with the Jehovah that God has scattered you. And if any of your outcasts be in the uttermost parts of heaven, from thence will Jehovah your God gather you, and from thence he will fetch you, and so on to the end of the chapter. The basic chronology is that no matter where the Jews are scattered and dispersed among the world, they will all come to faith. Only after they all come to faith will there be a final worldwide regathering, a final worldwide restoration of the Jewish people. Obviously, the modern Jewish state does not fill or fulfill a prophecy like this. And therefore, these, uh, this view holds that the modern Jewish state does not fulfill any prophecy they can think of. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 27. Isaiah chapter 27. Verse 12, Isaiah 27, verse 12. And it shall come to pass in that day that Jehovah will beat off his fruit from the flood of the river unto the brook of Egypt. And you shall be gathered one by one, all your children of Israel. It shall come to pass in that day, the great trumpet shall be blown, and it shall come the ready to perish the land of Assyria, and then they will outcast the land of Egypt, and they shall worship Jehovah in the holy mountain at Jerusalem. Notice the motivation of bringing all the Jews back. They come back because they're being motivated to come and worship God at the holy mountain at Jerusalem. From the beginning, Zionism was a secular movement, movement among the Jewish people. In the early days, uh, Zionism it was largely rejected by the Orthodox community. As a result of events of World War I and more so World War II, the majority, with rare exception, among the Orthodoxy now supports Zionism, now support Israel. 
But, and then when the Jews were returning, their, their motivation was to have a safe place for Jews to be able to live and not suffer the kind of persecution they've suffered for so many years in the lands of, um, of Europe and elsewhere. And the modern Jewish state simply does not fit a prophecy like this, and therefore they do not see the modern Jewish state as any fulfillment. One more example would be Ezekiel chapter 39. Ezekiel chapter 39. The context begins in verse 25. We'll pick up our reading in verse 27. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' lands and am sanctified in them in the sight of many uh, nations, and they shall know that I am Jehovah their God, in that I caused them to go into captivity among the nations, and have gathered them unto their own land, and I will leave none of them there any more. Neither will I hide my face any more from them, for I put out my spirit upon the house of Israel, says the Lord Jehovah. Here again he pictures a people who are believing people upon whom the Spirit has been put out upon. And even the Southern nations are, are glorifying God from bringing the Jews back into land. With modern Israel's history, the Southern nations have been opposed. Israel has made peace um, and signed a peace treaty with Egypt and with Jordan. It's a rather cold peace for the most part, and for, for, and for all for the most part, the other nations are still quite anti-Israel surrounding the country. And so if you look at these three um, prophecies, and there are others as well, they clearly um, disagree with the first view. They believe that someday these prophecies will be fulfilled literally. But they do not see the modern Jewish state fulfilling any of these prophecies, and therefore, like they would agree with the first view, the modern Jewish state is an accident of history, it does not fulfill any divine prophecy. Then there's a third view. The third view does, um, feels that what we are now seeing is the beginnings of the fulfillment of these prophecies. And bit by bit, more and more Jews will be returning to the land till every Jew is back. Somewhere in the process, though they're not quite sure when, there'll be a national salvation. And because this is not the beginnings of the final restoration, it is, a, it is important for every Jew to now return to Israel. And they, go, they like to travel among messianic circles, telling Jewish believers that believing in Yeshua, believing in Jesus is a nice thing, but it does not, um, is not the final act of salvation. And part of salvation packages, they must move back to Israel. Salvation, therefore, is not merely what you believe, it's also where you happen to be living. And um, Ariel Ministries has established a rather large congregation in St. Petersburg, Russia. And an emissary of this view came to the congregation teaching the people, unless they go back to Israel quickly, they will still be lost. In the Messianic congregation I was a member of, and I was still living in Orange County, California, an emissary of this year came in telling the Jewish believers that it is incumbent upon them to quickly as possible to leave the USA and move to Israel. When the elders asked him for some biblical evidence for that obligation, he took him to Jeremiah chapter 50 and 51, where you have the call for Jews to return from, uh, to the land from Babylon. 
And when they pointed out what it says from Babylon, the men said, well, when Jeremiah said Babylon, he really meant the United States of America. And that would surprise Jeremiah, I'm sure. And they pointed out, he also mentions the Euphrates River. His answer was, when, Mo when Jeremiah said the Euphrates, he meant the Mississippi River of the USA. And therefore, it's incumbent upon all Jews to return. Now, what these first two views all miss is that the Bible speaks of two different worldwide regatherings. First of all, a worldwide regathering in unbelief in preparation for judgment, the judgment of the tribulation. Then there'll be a second worldwide regathering in faith in preparation for blessing, the blessings of the messianic kingdom. The passages we just read that describe the second worldwide regathering in faith in preparation for blessing. But other passages of scripture that speak of a different kind of worldwide regathering, one in unbelief in preparation for judgment, the judgment of the tribulation. And therefore, the, the, these two different distinctions need to be maintained. So at this point, I study think in terms of three plus one plus three. Three plus one plus three. We'll now look at three other passages which speak of a different kind of worldwide regathering, one in unbelief, in preparation for judgment. And then... Um, and, the, and this is quite different than the three passages we just read. And then we'll see the concept of two different worldwide regatherings. And we agree that the three passages we just read are not yet being fulfilled with the modern Jewish state and cannot be fulfilled until Israel, uh, after following Israel's national salvation. We're describing another kind of regathering in unbelief. Let's turn then to Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. Look at verse 33. 20, 33. As thou lives, says the Lord Jehovah, surely with a mighty hand, and with an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out, will I be king over you. I will bring you out of the peoples, and will gather you out of the countries wherein you are scattered, with a mighty hand, with an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out. And I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples, and there will enter judgment with you face to face. Like as entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness land of Egypt, so will enter judgment with you, says the Lord Jehovah. And I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you the bond of the covenant, and I will purge out from among you the rebels that transgress against me, and I, and I will bring them forth out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter into the land of Israel. You shall know that I am the Lord Jehovah. Now, he writes what he writes from the background of, of what happened at Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea is a beautiful oasis which was right on the border of the Promised Land. And once you walk past that oasis, that will put you into the Promised Land. And from that oasis, Moses sent out 12 spies who came back 40 days later, all agreeing on one point, the land is all that God said it was, a land that flows with milk and honey. But then came a point of disagreement. Only two of the 12 said, God is with us, we can take the land. 
but ten men said, oh no, because of the numerical superiority of the Canaanites and the military power, there's no way we can take the land. And there was a massive rebellion against the authority of Aaron and Moses. This was the tenth act of rebellion since the Exodus. And they began a rebellion that, to which the two leaders, Aaron and Moses, were most killed until God intervened. And until God intervened, the rebellion was very strong. At that point, God entered into, into judgment with the Exodus generation. They will now have to continue wandering in the desert till 40 years pass. In the 40-year period, all who came out will die out. So 40 years later, it would be a new nation, a nation that was born as freemen under, uh, in the wilderness and not the slaves in Egypt, to be allowed to enter the land under Joshua. That historical frame of reference becomes the background for something future, but now he prophesies God will begin to regather his people from all parts of the world. A regard we've been seeing with the Zionist movement before and after 1948. But at some point, God will again enter into judgment with his people. And by means of the tribulation judgments, the rebels will be purged out. And those who survive will undergo a national salvation. And then he will bring them into the land of Israel under the authority of King Messiah. But notice here there's a different chronology, a worldwide regathering in unbelief, followed by a rather severe judgment, which then leads to the second worldwide regathering in faith in preparation for the blessings of the kingdom. Let's now go to chapter 22. The focus of chapter 20 was on the land in general, but this one focuses more upon Jerusalem. Let's look at verse 17 of chapter 22. And the word of Jehovah came unto me, saying, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross unto me. All of them are brass and tin and iron lead in the midst of the furnace, and these are the dross of silver. Therefore thus says the Lord Jehovah, because you all become dross, Therefore, behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem, as they gather silver and brass and iron and lead and tin into the midst of the furnace to blow the fire upon it, to melt it. So will I gather you in my anger and in my wrath, and I will lay you there and melt you. Yea, I will gather you and blow upon you with the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in the midst thereof. As silver is melted in the midst of the furnace, so shall ye be melted in the midst thereof, and ye shall know that I, Jehovah, have put out my wrath upon you. Notice again a worldwide regathering focusing more upon Jerusalem. It's a regathering in unbelief because they're yet filled with the impurities of dross, of silver, lead, iron, and so on. And the purpose of bringing them into the furnace of the wrath of God is for the purging of them so they finally come to faith and recognize who their God is indeed. And only then will they finally experience the final worldwide regard in faith in preparation for blessing. Here again we see a prophecy describing a different type of regathering, one in unbelief in preparation for judgment. Now we'll turn to the prophet Zephaniah. Minor prophet Zephaniah.
The first chapter of Zephaniah, beginning in verse 7 to the end of the chapter, is describing a period of time using a term that was common among the prophets of Israel called the day of Yahweh, the day of the Lord, the day of Jehovah. And it appears as the day of the Lord also in the New Testament. It always refers to that a period of time of judgment just preceding the establishment of the Messianic Kingdom. It's the most common term for what we now call the Tribulation or Great Tribulation. Our most common term today is Tribulation, Great Tribulation, but the most common biblical term in both Testaments is the Day of Jehovah, the Day of the Lord. In chapter 1, it describes in some detail what a terrible time that will be for the people of Israel. But now look at chapter 2, because it describes another event that must precede the arrival of the Day of Jehovah. Chapter 2, verse 1, Gather yourselves together, yea, gather together, O nation that hath no shame, before the decree bring forth, before the day passes the chaff, before the fierce anger of Jehovah come upon you, before the day of Jehovah's anger come upon you. So before the day of Jehovah can arrive, there must be a regathering of the people in unbelief. They're still unbelief because verse, verse 1 is showing they're still not ashamed of their sins and the purpose of bringing them into the day of the Lord is for them to become ashamed of their sins and finally come to faith, undergo a national salvation in preparation for the final restoration. So three examples of a different kind of chronology. A regard unbelief followed by the judgment followed by national salvation, then it's followed by the uh, worldwide regathering faith in preparation for blessings for the Messianic Kingdom. Those are the first three. Now turn it over to the, other, to the next page, or the other side, and now we come to the plus one. And let's turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Let me present the fourth view. What the fourth view recognizes is that the Bible does describe two different worldwide regatherings, one in unbelief and one in, one in faith. Having recognized that, must go on to say, however, we cannot be sure the modern Jewish state fulfills the modern the prophecies about the worldwide regathering in unbelief, and why not? Because in their perspective, you can have a worldwide regathering in unbelief followed by dispersion. Another regathering followed by dispersion. Even another regathering followed by dispersion before you have the specific one that fulfilled the prophecies that we just read. That's exactly what Isaiah will tell us cannot be. Now, the entire context is Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11 through chapter 12, verse 6. Isaiah 11, 11 to chapter 12, verse 6. And what he's describing is the final worldwide regarding faith in preparation for the blessings of the kingdom. But having um, described uh, the final worldwide regathering, the second one, how is that relevant with our present study on the modern Jewish state? Notice when he describes the final worldwide regathering how he numbers it. Look at 11, verse 11. It shall come to pass in that day, the Lord will set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people that shall remain, 
from Assyria and from Egypt and from Patros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamad and from the islands of the sea. He will set up an ensign for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. As he's describing the final worldwide regathering, notice how he numbers it. The last one is the second one. If the last one is the second one, how many more can you have before that one? Even with new math, only one. In other words, this, verse, this passage only allows for two different worldwide regatherings. The first one, by the way, was not the return for Babylon. That was a migration from one nation, Babylonia, to another, Judea. But we're dealing with two worldwide regatherings. And only can only be two worldwide regatherings. And therefore, the modern Jewish state fulfills the uh, first worldwide regathering in, in, um, in unbelief in preparation for judgment. Uh, we are yet to look forward to the second worldwide regathering. Let's go to the other plus three and in your outline, three corollary issues. There are three other relevant issues which are relevant to the modern Jewish state in Bible prophecy. And the first one has to do with the start of the tribulation. Turn now to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, verses 24 through 27, we have his prophecy of the 77s, or a 490-year period God has decreed over the Jewish people and over the Jewish city, Jerusalem. That goes beyond our purpose to go through the whole passage, and because that's not our theme at the moment. But this is an important passage for people involved in Jewish ministries to know well, because here we have the only prophecy that provides a specific timetable for the first coming. If you have done it or will do it, what you learn is by the time you come to the end of verse 26, the first 483 years of this 490-year period has already been fulfilled in history, coming to an end at the time of the first coming. Well, less than yet seven years to run of this prophetic time clock of Israel. Another question is, when will the, how will we know or what will trigger these last seven years of the tribulation to begin operating? Now this brings us to verse 27 of, ch of uh, chapter 9. Chapter 9. And he shall make a firm covenant with many for one seven. The pronoun he goes back to its nearest antecedent, which is found in verse 26 as, The prince that shall come the prince that shall come. In other words, the prince that shall come in verse 26, and the he makes a covenant in verse 27, is the one and the same individual. But known as circles is simply as the Antichrist. And um, he uses a definite article in verse 26 because he spoke of him twice before in chapter 7, again in chapter 8. This is the third time of mentioning him.
What we learn from verse 27 is that the seven years of tribulation begin with a signing of a seven-year covenant between Israel and the Antichrist. Until this covenant is signed, there can be no tribulation. Now, the, the question now is, what has to precede it? Two things. Number one, the Antichrist must already be in high political authority before the tribulation with whom a sovereign state like Israel could sign a covenant of this nature. And this is not yet in place. But the second thing this requires is there is a Jewish state with a Jewish government with whom a sovereign state like Israel could sign a covenant of this nature. And this is now very much in place. So this prophecy requires Israel to exist before the tribulation. We now have such a, a state, and not the way the modern Jewish state fulfills modern elements of Bible prophecy. Now the next thing in the outline is the third temple and the abomination of desolation. I'm going to read four passages in sequence, and I'll make my observations. The first passage is to finish, go back to verse 27. He shall make a firm covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will, he will cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And upon the wing of abomination shall come one that makes desolate. And even unto the full end, and that determined, shall wrath be poured out upon the desolate. Second passage will be Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And look at verse 15. Matthew 24 and verse 15. Go to the next slide. When therefore, ye shall, when therefore ye see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of to Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, Limta reads, understand. Since I became a believer, I've gotten several different booklets identifying who the Antichrist is. Years ago, I got a pamphlet that proved that Ronald Reagan has to be the Antichrist and why because his first name, middle name, and last name all have six letters to them, as if God was enamored with the Latin alphabet. I've seen other things um, as well, as different presidents being accused of being the Antichrist. In fact, the, um, the first George Bush uh, got a little bit of it, not much, but the second George Bush, when he was elected, there's a lot of fear and trepidation in Israel, a lot of fear. Because the last time the Jews listened to someone by the name of Bush, they got lost in the desert for 40 years. <laughs> but, uh, last, but he became very good friend of Israel. If you visit the downtown area, there's a, a stone obelisk that has his name and Israel's appreciation for what he did for them during his presidency. Now the third passage would be 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. I've even, people have been asked me about uh, Barak being the Antichrist. I told them he may fulfill the prophecy we just read in Matthew 24 about the Obama nation of desolation. But no, he's not the Antichrist as such. 
Second Thess chapter two. Verse three, let no man beguile you in any wise, for it will not be except the departure come first and a man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. He who opposes and exalts himself against all that is called God, all that is worshipped, so that he sits in the temple of God, setting himself forth as God. The last one will be Revelation 11. Verse 1, Revelation 11, verse 1, There was given me a reed, like unto a rod, and one said, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar, and them that worship therein, and the court which is outside the temple, leave it out. For it has been given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. All four passages are describing an event that will occur at the midpoint of the tribulation. When the abomination of desolation is committed, that is when the Antichrist will take over the Jewish temple, then standing, and seat himself in it, proclaim himself to be God Almighty, and call upon the whole world to worship him as God, and to signify their acceptance of his deity by taking his mark of 666. When they hear of this event, they must get out of Israel and get out of Israel quickly. Now that is an event that happens at the midpoint of the tribulation, and so how is that relevant to our presence topic about the modern Jewish state? It's relevant in that it shows that, that by the midpoint of the tribulation, the temple is already standing and has been functioning for a while, and therefore it must be rebuilt before the midpoint of the tribulation. That allows us two options. First of all, it might be rebuilt in the first half of the tribulation, or it might be rebuilt even before the tribulation starts. We cannot make it more exact than that based upon what the Bible shows. But by the midpoint, it is standing and functioning, which means that eventually Israel must have sovereignty over East Jerusalem and the temple compound, and that did not happen in 1948. Israel became a state in 1948, able to keep West Jerusalem, which was the new city, but the old city, which is the biblical city, was taken over by Jordan, was under Jordanian sovereignty for 19 years, from 48 to 1967. Among the products of the Six-Day War, the Israel was able to capture the West, what's called the West Bank, able to capture the old city. Only then was it possible to rebuild the temple. It was not possible before 1967. Now and then rumors break out that the Jews have begun rebuilding the temple, but all such uh, rules, uh, rumors at this point are false. I was uh, a student at Hebrew University in 1966-1967, and, and the Six-Day War broke out while I was there. Two months after the war, I finished my studies and came back to the USA and heard this wild rumor that Jews were importing stones from Bedford, Indiana to rebuild the temple. I didn't hear any such rumor when I was in Israel, but I heard about it all over America, the, uh, Bedford, Indiana. You don't have to be in Israel more than two or three days to realize one basic truth. The last thing Israel needs to import from anywhere are rocks and stones. <laughs> They've got plenty of it everywhere in the country. 
And uh, there's, a, there's a Talmudic legend that explains why Israel has so many rocks and stones. God created all the stones at one time, put them in two sacks. Okay, one sack to one angel, one sack to the other angel, told them to evenly spread out the rocks around the world. Well, the first angel went out and he evenly spread the rocks all around the world. When the second angel began to flow out, he flew over Israel, the back ripped, and half the world's stones fell into Israel. And that's why they have so many rocks of Israel. There's no, there's no construction yet happening. We know biblically someday there will be, but nothing happened yet. But there are three other things happening in preparation for it. There was one group called the Temple uh, Mount uh, Institute that has over the years been making furnishings for the next temple, and now they have it pretty well complete. When I used to do the five-week study tours of Israel, I would take my groups to their institute, and they show us all that they've done, and they've done pretty much everything. They have the golden lampstand, they have the scapegoat uh, red ribbon, also the lots. They have the pots and pans to catch the blood and to pour out the blood, and many other things, high priestly garments and, and, and the daily crisp, uh, priestly garments and so on. And so once the temple is built, they can take all these things and put them right in and, and, and get, the, get these ministry going. So that's one thing that's happening with the present Jewish state. Another group called the Atarit Kohanim, which means the crown of the priesthood, they have selected Orthodox Jews who are from the line of Aaron and training them to be proper priests, to do the proper work of the priesthood in sacrificing the animals. And they'll have people ready to do so once the temple's rebuilt. And the third thing has to do with the trying to develop the perfect red heifer. The laws of red heifer are found in the book of Numbers chapter 19. And by the Mosaic law, they have, it has to have uh, no more than two uh, black hairs and no more than two white hairs. And the Mosaic law did not require that much redness, but the rabbinic law requires that much redness. It was not used as a sacrifice per se. It was not killed at the temple compounds taken outside, usually after Israel, after Israel entered the land on the Mount of Olives. And they would kill it there and then burn it down to ashes. And it was used as for, um, uh, for cleaning those who became unclean by touching a corpse. If you touched a dead man or a dead animal, you'd be unclean for seven days. And during these seven days of uncleanness, they would sprinkle you twice during the week with the ashes of the red heifer mixed with the water before you can be ceremonially cleansed. A, a couple of decades ago, there was, rep there was a report that they, found that they finally have the perfect red heifer. Red heifer is not killed until the age of three, and by then it had a bushel of uh, 10 or 20 black hairs and white hairs, and therefore it got disqualified. As you know from um, cowboy movies, there's a problem anywhere. The Texas ranchers, ra rangers come to rescue. This was a Texan rancher. He had several perfect red heifers, which he shipped to Israel. You would think that would solve the problem, except for another rabbinic issue. For the red heifer to be kosher, for um, to be the red heifer, it must be born in Israel. It cannot be born in Texas. It must be a Jewish cow. It cannot be a, a Gentile cow. Uh, it must be a Holstein, not an Angus. So using, uh, but what they're doing is using genetic engineering. 
trying to reduce the red heifer. It hasn't happened yet as far as I know, but um, they're still operating with the descendants of the ones he sent them to try to get the red heifer to use the ashes because no priest could function until he's been um, cleansed with the ashes of the red heifer. So these are three other things that are happening today in the modern Jewish state. One more point on your outline, what about the Ark of the Covenant? There's a modern misconception in many uh, Christian settings and church settings that the, that the, red, that the Ark of the Covenant has, been, has to be found before they can start the sacrificial system. That is simply not true. The second temple lasted for six centuries. It was rebuilt in 515 BC, kill, uh, destroyed in AD 70, six centuries. And um, they had no ash, then they had no Ark of the Covenant. What they had was a, a, a foundation stone that was left over from the Solomonic Temple. They put that into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled the blood of Yom Kippur, their atonement upon that block. But outside of that, um, there is no, they had no Ark of the Covenant. Furthermore, we also know from the Messianic, from a Messianic prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 16. Jeremiah 3.16, in the Messianic Kingdom, in the Millennium, there will be no Ark of the Covenant in the Millennial Temple either. And so, um, I doubt the, the, the Ark had, had survived the Babylon destruction. The Bible lists all the things Nebuchadnezzar took with him into Babylonia. He doesn't, it does not mention the Ark. Only one search, Jewish groups are not searching for the ark, by the way, and these are different evangelical Christian groups figuring God needs some help to fulfill his prophecies. Three different groups have found the ark. One found it in a cave just outside the north wall of Jerusalem, that they found it in Ethiopia, that they found it in Jordan. In all three cases, they, their cameras never worked that day and don't have any pictures of it for some reason. But. Uh, uh, Ark is not necessary for the temple to function. And now for the last point, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 38. Chapter 38, verse uh, 1 through chapter 39, verse 16, describes the lines of nations to invade Israel. It will not be my purpose to deal with the different nations involved in this invasion and also to deal with the timing of this invasion in our own circles. There's about five different perspectives on the timing of this invasion. I'm only going to deal with insofar as this prophecy would be relevant to the modern state of Israel. On your outline, there are two things. Number one, the kind of Israel described in Ezekiel 38 and 39. And look at chapter 38, verse 8. 38, 8. After many days you shall be visited. In latter years you shall come into the land that is brought back from the sword, cut out of many peoples upon the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste, but is brought forth out of the peoples, and they shall dwell securely, all of them. And skipping down to verse 12, to take the spoil, to take the prey, to turn your hands against the waste places, now inhabited against the peoples that are gathered out of the nations, have gotten cattle and goods, and that dwell in the middle of the earth. He's describing a nation that has come back from many different nations. 
and the, the citizens of Israel have come from about 90 different countries. They've begun rebuilding the wasted cities that lie desolate for so long. They, have, they came back after escaping the sword and now rebuilding the towns and villages. He's not describing any Israel that existed in ancient times. The first time we have such an Israel happens to be since 1948. Um, sometimes you'll hear people say that this has to happen when this was living in peace, but the word shalom, the word peace is not used even one time anywhere in the passage. The word he uses is the word bituach or bitohon, which means security. They're living in a context of uh, self-security. And it's even used in other contexts, right in the midst of a war, of, of yet people are self-assured. So it's that this is not required, this we're living in peace, but this we're living in a sense of security, and that is the present state of Israel. Now secondly, the place of destruction of the invading armies, point two. Now verses, chapter 38, verses 17 through 23 describe a supernatural event in which God will wipe out the whole invading army. It shows that they penetrate Israeli defenses. Because now in chapter 39, verse uh, 2, chapter 39, verse 2, and I will turn you about and will lead you on and will cause you to come up from the uttermost parts of the north. I will bring you upon the mountains of Israel. Now skip down to verse 4. You shall fall upon the mountains of Israel. The, the mountains of Israel is the central mountain range that serves like say, as a uh, backbone for the country. It begins at the south end of the Jezreel Valley, at the south end of the Galilee. It runs the whole length, north to south, and finally peters out of, uh, a, dist a short distance from Beersheba. In these mountains are many of the famous cities of scripture like Dothan, like uh, Samaria, like um, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, Ai, Ramah, also uh, uh, other cities as well. Now from 1948 to 1967, the mountains of Israel were not in Israel. They were in Jordan. And the way the border ran, it ran at the north side, right at the foot of these mountains, then it moved into along the coastal line at the foot of these mountains, then it cut into the mountains, cut Jerusalem in two and came out of the mountains, and then it came around the side side. Israel only had about 5% of these mountains. 95% were the Jordanian sovereignty. But this prophecy required Israel to have total sovereignty over this whole territory. And that was not true in 1948, but not the product of the Six-Day War in 1967. Israel did begin having sovereignty over the whole area of the mountains of Israel. Not the way the modern Jewish states now fits within the realm of Bible prophecy. So on this question of whether the, it does or does not fulfill Bible prophecy, we need to stay balanced. On one hand, we must be careful not to see more fulfillment than there really is. On the other hand, we must not fail to see the fulfillment that is there. And the modern Jewish state does fulfill a number of prophecies which we have looked at and also some we haven't, don't have time to look at. That clearly God, Israel is in God's hands and what he promised will indeed come to pass. And that will give us uh, some courage, some comfort, because if God's fulfilling his promises to Israel, he'll also fulfill the promises to the body of the Messiah the Keilah, the Ecclesia, the church, the body of the Messiah. And um, our 
goal is not to find out who the Antichrist is, not to find out this or that. Our hope is the return of the Messiah into the air and who will resurrect the uh, dead saints and catch up the living saints. That's referred to as the rapture of the church, and that'll be uh, my topic sometime tomorrow as well. But um, we can also trust him to fulfill that promise to us as well. Somewhere on the t along the way you're sitting, you should have a folder like this. If you will, just try to grab one and open up all the way. Do you have any on the table at this point? Any, any of these on the table? If you don't, don't have one, raise your hand. We'll pass some out to you. Just raise your hand. Open up where you see the picture. This, gives, this brochure will give you a short introduction to the ministry which uh, I serve, which um, the Gabazon serve, Ariel Ministries. Ariel is a Hebrew word meaning the Lion of God. And it emphasizes our belief. We are Jews who believe in the Messiahship of Yeshua, the Messiahship of Jesus, whom the Bible calls the Lion of the Tribe of Judah. We began this ministry back in 1977 on two basic principles, and principles. And the first principle is to share the gospel with our Jewish people. We've done this over the establishment of, um, of branches in, different, in 10 different countries now, but we're about to establish branches in two more countries, in Italy and also a country in Liberia, the country in Africa. And we'll have a total of 12 branches internationally and other branches within both countries. And um, our staff has been trained in the area of witnessing to Jewish people. And those branches well, that are found in the Jewish areas, they're, they're also responsible to get the gospel out to Jewish people. If there are no Jewish people there, then they're responsible to teach the scriptures from the Messian Jewish perspective that we are doing here and um, have done for some time. And um, that's the second major element, to teach the scriptures from the Jewish background out of which it came, which means two things. Some things we teach uh, from, these, from the uh, events that was the background of the biblical accounts. If you look at studies on the life of the Messiah, for example, we get back to the first century context of Judaism in that century, uh, from the Jewish context, and so things are written the way they're written, things are said the way they're said, things happen the way they happen because of a Jewish background. And that, uh, that is the first element about the Jewish perspective. But secondly, which is primarily what we're doing in this conference, is to teach what the Bible teaches about Israel, especially in Bible prophecy. And therefore, that God is not through with the Jewish people. This, he still has a program for them that will be, become more and more evident as time goes on. And so these are the two major purposes. And we do, we do the teaching in various ways. The teachings goes on in the various branches. And so, the, for example, the branch in Montreal is a, this teaching elements as well as an outreach program. And um, we also publish books. We also print tapes and manuscripts. In fact, the manuscripts are the three topics I am teaching available from that table. So you can follow me closer. And tomorrow, the two sessions I'll be teaching tomorrow, if you like, by getting a hold of those manuscripts. And the books we have there, then these, these not all the books that we have published, but they primarily focus on one of those two elements uh, concerning the teaching of these scriptures from the Jewish frame of reference. So I hope you'll take more time to uh, read the, the brochure more thoroughly. Not part of our program, 
is that we have uh, a special summer school program in upstate New York in the Adirondack Mountains in the months of July and August, now running eight weeks uh, uh, for the summer. It's divided in several different kinds of systems. There's a two-week curriculum, followed by a three-week, followed by a one-week, and followed by a two-week. And for all of the courses, except for one, they follow a, a five-year cycle, so you have to come five summers to everything we offer. But otherwise, um, you can uh, get the information from the brochure. I hope there's some on the table. If not, you can go to our webpage, ariel.org, and get it through that ministry. And um, that'll give you uh, what's available for this summer. But the one course we teach every year, which is the sixth week, is the life of the Messiah from a Jewish perspective. It's a 25-hour course, but we teach it in one week, three hours in the morning and two hours at night to emphasize um, those teachings. So you can come up for one week and come up for all eight weeks or something in between. Um, and enjoy the kind of studies we provide in a very beautiful area of upstate New York. And if you come, you should also bring your passport because the, uh, the uh, Montreal branch has a full-scale Messianic congregation. It's only about an hour and a half drive from our um, school campus all the way up to Montreal. You would enjoy uh, joining us for the Sabbath services, a great Messianic style of worship and so on, as well as uh, uh, some of the teachings that you got from... Um, the uh, first hour from Garpizom, um, from, uh, but for some reason, the first name now skips me. Uh, Jacques Garpizom, thank you. And uh, so on. Another thing we do is teach through our magazine. It's a magazine that comes out four times a year, it's a quarterly. It will give you some tidbits from different branches, but the main emphasis is to have um, three to six different uh, studies from the same Western Jewish perspective. We do not charge for the magazine. It's free of charge. You can get it in one of two ways, and I'll show you how to get to it momentarily. Also, if you, we, we also run an online school called Ariel Online Courses. I don't know if you have these brochures on there, but you can get the information online. We now have more than 300 students taking these courses, and we are adding more and more courses. In fact, the reason I'm here is primarily uh, to tape some two new courses, because we do a special taping in a, in a taping uh, place uh, here in um, Salt Lake City. You can also take these courses either for credit or without credit, and um, we'll add more and more courses till we have all the courses necessary to complete a major in Messianic Jewish studies. So that's not the issue that you can live with or enjoy with. Now, if you look at the brochure one more time and look at the passage page that has this, uh, this page on it, that's like a coupon page. This outlines four ways by which you can participate in, uh, with us. Under the phrase, my commitment, it says, I do indeed feel like uh, to commit myself to the Lord to, number one, pray for the salvation of the Jewish people. Salt Lake City does have a sizable Jewish community. And you may know Jewish people, past or present. I would encourage you to pray for the ones you know by name. Also, you can pray for uh, others as well that you may not know by name. I'll, I'll, get, I'll talk about that a bit probably tomorrow. Secondly, do what I can to give them the good news of Jesus the Messiah. See what you can do to share the gospel with any Jewish person you might know, and there's two good ways you can do so. The first option is to share your own testimony. Well, that's important is this. 
when we grew up in the Jewish community, we do not distinguish between uh, Gentiles and Christians. We use those terms synonymously. If you're not born a Jew, that makes you a Gentile. That part is accurate. But, if you, but we also led to believe in the community we, raise, we are raised, automatically in America makes you a Christian. And of course, that is not true. So in your testimony, you want to bring out clearly that while you were born a Gentile, you could not be born a Christian. At some point, you had to know what's the content of the gospel and what you had to believe to qualify for that term. A second way you can witness is to use what I call what we call a Jewish witnessing packet. It's a, a, a few uh, small tracts that respond to specific Jewish objections to the messiahship of Yeshua, messiahship of Jesus, such as the virgin birth issue, can, how can he be God, and so on. And if they, and those uh, questions are raised, these small uh, points will be able to deal with. And um, over the years, we have found a lot, found a lot, a lot of Gentile believers who are Jewish friends, or I mean, have Jewish friends or neighbors, but they won't share the gospel with them because they're afraid of a negative reaction, and therefore do not uh, wish to give them anything. Uh, and if you're in that, if you're, and if you're in that position, here's what I can recommend you can try. Get a hold of our Jewish packet anywhere from our home office, then mail it to your Jewish contact without giving your name or address away. And this is what we call this approach, chicken evangelism. <laughs> but it's been known to work. Over the years, I've met Jewish believers who became believers because someone has assembled the church just that way. If you won't do it any other way, just try chicken evangelism. God has used it. You never know what God will do. To pray for the work of our young ministries, we have a special prayer band um, uh, booklet, and I will bring, it, I'll bring that tomorrow, and I'll say more about this third area tomorrow. Then fourthly, to make a monetary equipment of so much for the next number of months or years. REL itself is an independent faith ministry. We are not backed by any uh, particular large churches. On the American scene, about 20% of our support comes from local churches, but 80% simply comes from individuals who have felt led to make a monetary commitment. So you might make this a matter of prayer between today and tomorrow. And then if you feel so led, simply fill in the dollar for so much for months or years. Then give us your name or address, tear the slip off, and either, and sometime tomorrow, just leave it in the offering basket. If you make a monetary commitment, simply wait until you hear from us. We'll let you know by a letter when to begin mailing it in, and that'll be the one and only time you'll hear from us about this. We do not publish reminders and things of that nature. We're simply um, uh, sending you a letter telling you when to begin, and from then on, it's between you and the Lord. So if he supplies it, they'll mail it in, but if not, you won't, but you will not be sent reminders from us whatsoever. That will go contrary to our policy. Now, if you, and for any amount you're giving in the offering that should be taken tomorrow, in the upper left-hand corner, if you wish to receive a receipt, mark the amount you're giving at, um, tomorrow, and we will send you a number of receipt for your income tax records. And um, if you wish uh, to receive a receipt, we'll do it that way. Now, as far as how to get the magazine, if you want to receive it as a hard copy like this one, we will need your full name and address. But it's also available as an email. When we receive it as an email, just give us your email address and that will be sufficient. We'll be happy to send it as long as you want to keep on receiving it in accordance with the Lord's will. I'm done.
we have just a few minutes left. We do want to be conscious of the time, but we have three microphones, one here in the center and two on the edges. And if anybody has any questions that they would like to ask either of Arnold or Jacques as it relates to their presentations or even questions that might be beyond that, we already have a young man right up here up front. <coughs> My goodness. All right. Arnold, you're going to have to get up here because I'm not going to answer nothing. <laughs> what is your question? I just wanted to ask if uh, there are any prophecies regarding the first regathering of the nation of Israel in unbelief that have not or cannot be fulfilled by the current uh, Israeli state. Well, the ones that we talked about and others we haven't talked about are all being covered by the modern Jewish state. I do not. Thank you. <laughs> hey, gentleman right over there. Hey, Arnold. I just want to ask, uh, I've, I've heard recently that uh, the rebuilding of the temple will be a part of the covenant. Is that true, or does the scripture open it up? It could be built even now. We could witness the building of it. Well, nothing in the verse 27 implies that the rebuilding of the temple is connected to the covenant that the Antichrist makes with them. What it says is that well, he'll make the covenant, and at the halfway point, he'll break the covenant by a forced cessation of the sacrificial system. But it doesn't say anything about building the, te the um, temple. Therefore, it could, be, it could be in connection with that, or also be not in connection with that. Yes. What do you think of the archaeological discoveries in the old city of David that they think that the temple was actually there instead of on the Temple Mount? The people who are propounding that view are not archaeologists. They're not even, they're not even students of historical geography. The city of David is now wide enough to hold the size of a temple compound. No archaeologist supports that position. This was propounded primarily of two men, one who was a businessman, one who was a police officer or the detective who claims because he's a detective, he could see things others cannot see. That may be true in solving a crime, it doesn't make you an expert in archaeology and so on. And the amount of excavations done in the, the whole round table and comparing it with the details given by Josephus, who gave us a lot of details, it fits perfectly. And so the temple, the Jewish temple, was in what is now the, the Dome of the Rock area. And, um, and, it's, and no archaeologists hold this out the view that I've come across, including some believing archaeologists. follow-up uh, yes um, I was wondering in light of the uh, the Trump uh, peace plan the deal of the century yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, w well what is the relationship between for example a, a, a peace treaty that's offered like this it's on the table and uh, of course as it stands I mean if it were ratified it would basically divide the land does such a plan bring God's judgment and wrath further upon the United States well, that's already answered in Joel chapter 3, that he will punish the Gentiles for three reasons, one of which because of the dividing of the land. Um, whether this is the, sort of the biblical, I think it's too early to tell. And uh, at this point, the Arabs have already unilaterally rejected it, so it's not even going to be negotiated at this stage. So right now, just a current event, and I try to avoid interpreting the Bible based upon current events. So is this the, the program of, of what Daniel spoke about? Way too early to tell. 
Right, but would this, though, even if it wasn't the plan of the Daniel plan, would, yeah. would it, could it bring judgment upon the United States individually? If, if, if it succeeds in dividing the land, then ultimately it will bring a divine judgment, yes. Uh, we have a Jewish neighbor that we've been talking with uh, lately, um, and he only seems to be willing to look at the first five books, the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. Other than that, he doesn't want to go there or doesn't think they're valid. So how did that start? Does your material have something that can help us in that area? Well, in the course of the history of Judaism, the five books of Moses were given special priority. And therefore, only the five books of Moses are fully, verbally, inspired word for word. But with the prophets, that's a bit less inspired, which is the second division, and the third division called the writings is even less inspired. So that's, that's been the view of, of, in Judaism. Um, most Jews today, by the way, don't hold inspiration at all because they tend to be quite secular, but among the Orthodox, that is, that develops. So they have respect for the whole Tanakh, for the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament. But they, but they do give the Torah, the five books of Moses, super inspiration. They don't apply it to the other sections of the prophets or the writings. One of his claims was the, I think it was the word heaven is not in any of those first five books. So we'll talk about the eternal state with him. Well, because heaven is not mentioned? Well, it's mentioned in verse one. <laughs> <laughs> Or, I, mean, I mean, yeah, life after death, not so much heaven, but life after death. Well, if you just pick out early revelation, first of all, uh, not everything was revealed at one time, so you only have to get the whole Bible truth. You have to look at the whole Bible that God has given us. And, and uh, the Ra talks about Sheol, even Shiloh and Hades, but that's already found in the five books of Moses. And Sheol was a place where people went to after they died. And it describes different levels of Sheol or Hades. Well, Hades is there's only New Testament, but it's the Greek equivalent to Sheol. But Sheol is mentioned. We were also trying to use Deuteronomy, where Moses was gathered to his fathers, and so we were asking, well, where is that? Where did he go? That's, a good, that's, that's one of the evidences of life after death, because Moses, what that often is tried to interpret, goes to the fathers, just means he was buried in a family cemetery. Well, Moses was not buried in a family cemetery. Where he was buried, nobody knows. Uh, only God knows. But other people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were gathered unto their fathers, but they didn't die in the, they weren't buried in the cemetery back, back in, uh, in Aramea, which is where they came from. Jesse. So I think you've done a good job of showing where we have a gathering of unbelief and a gathering in belief. Um, we obviously have in the prophets a where you have a prophecy about when they're in captivity that they're going to return, a remnant will return. What's the difference between seeing that, those prophecies versus this idea of a future? Like I know a lot of people would look at these and say this was fulfilled when they came back in 516. Well, the uh, prophecies that were fulfilled from return from Babylonian are never discussed as coming from the four corners of the earth. Right, from all the, the universal scope, right. would, that would be the biggest element right. of that. But, there, but there, like when I say, you have prophecies of, like we saw from the worldwide, but within elsewhere in the same Isaiah, it talks about Jews coming back just from one land, which is Babylonia. 
So the, the return from Babylon fulfills certain prophecies, but only those that spoke about a migration from Babylonia back to Judea or back to Israel. But until about four corners of the earth, the first time you have that is uh, as they begin to come back in the late 1900s and early 2000s, and then uh, early 1900s became a state in 1948. And you see that, so Deuteronomy 30, definitely Moses talks about the four corners that yeah. are gathered from all the nations. Exactly. And then you have various prophecies throughout that talk about just coming back from Babylon. And then you have this universal scope. That's where you would see the difference. The difference, right. Yeah. And by the way, also in Deuteronomy 30, he says he'll bring them back from the four corners of the earth and the four corners of heaven. And this, that's in the fifth book of Moses. This is the final Passover lamb. So now in the building of the new temple, there is, if the priests are trained to have sacrifices on the altar, what would they potentially sacrifice and would that still be acceptable? I'm, not, I'm missing a lot of what you're saying. Yeah, I, I'm not, we need, can we turn that up a little more? I can't even hear. And I have better hearing than you, <laughs> I'm sure, Arnold. Yeah, that doesn't catch everything. <laughs> okay, good now, sorry. So, um, Jesus is the Passover lamb, and the blood of Jesus covers all sins. Now, in the building of the new temple, if there is an altar and the priests are trained on sacrifices, what are they um, trained on? Like, you know, even if they sacrifice a lamb or whatsoever, so how, how is that acceptable post this? I'm still missing something there. Well, I am too. You might want to walk down closer to her, because... I'm okay here. Okay. okay, try again. Jesus is the Passover lamb, yeah. and the blood of Jesus covers all sin. So now in the building of the new temple, if the priests are trained on, on the altar for the sacrifices, what would the sacrifice be? Are you talking about the temple and the tribulation? The new temple and the tribulation, yes. Well, they're building the temple because they don't believe Jesus died for the sins. Okay. Okay. So they're, built, they're, going, they're going back to the mosaic system. It's not the same as the Melita temple that has a whole new system of laws and regulations. But, but the temple we talked about now is being built because they refuse to accept the sacrifice of the Messiah. In Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 through 4, you read about a temple Jews are building that God does not sanction. And that would be the tribulation temple. Thank you so much. Um, <clears throat> in your esch uh, eschatology, eschatological studies, have you got any validity or credibility given to the Ugaritic scrolls, uh, the Book of Enoch, and all of those kind of writings? And if so, do they lend any credibility or support in any way, minor or major, to Hebrew writings, the original Hebrew writings, not necessarily the Septuagint, but the actual yeah. real Hebrew writings. Well, the, these, well, the Book of Enoch was written somewhere in the first to second century BC. It's not, they're not part of the Ugaritic documents. Yeah, Those are good, separate yeah. documents they're altogether. Good, good, good. But, um, but, this, but these were, um, is one of many writings the Jewish people, the Jewish people wrote. They used a name of a previous uh, person who's famous to give it some validity. But, this, but the, docu the documents in Greek, and Enoch didn't speak Greek, 
there was not the multiplication of languages till uh, Babel and Enoch lived in, uh, lived in the, and, uh, before that time. But they do, they do express eschatological perspectives that was common in Jewish circles about the second century BC period, so we could learn a lot from them. But they, it's not scripture. So you see some correlation with Revelation and other books, but much of it is not correlated at all. And um, so just, just as we can learn a lot from Josephus about first century Israel, first century Judaism, but Josephus not inspired scripture, that would be true with the Book of Enoch, the Book of Tobit, and all these other either apocryphal books or the pseudo-apocryphal books. These all give us some insight into Jewish thinking of that time, but they're not scripture. you find in your, in your studies of the actual Hebrew language that it seemed to be written more for the Hebrews of the day rather than for us today? Well, those books were written uh, for Greek-speaking Jews because the books, the books are in Greek. As far the, as the Septuagint, but I mean, I mean, no, no, Septuagint is a translation of the right, Hebrew text, the Hebrew, but the Book I'm, of Enoch is is only in Greek. Okay, but well I'm talking about the Hebrew Old Testament yeah. Hebrew. Well, the Septuagint used the Hebrew uh, scriptures that dated to about 250 BC, and the the and what Hebrew text there was, we don't have anymore, and our Bibles today come from what's called the Masoretic text, which was finalized about 900 AD. And that's the source. So sometimes uh, the New Testament will quote from uh, the what is now the Septuagint text, sometimes from the uh, Septuagint from the Masoretic text, sometimes from the uh, whatever text that the Masoretes, the uh, people of Septuagint used to translate the Bible into Greek. We don't have that document. Also, sometimes even from the Samaritan Pentateuch. So you have three different sources. The New Testament sometimes agrees with one and agrees with the other. So like in Psalm 22, it says, like a lion, my hands and my feet. The New Testament reads, uh, they pierced my hands and my feet. So the rabbis used to say, speak a lot of that's a misquotation. But when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, they found a section of Psalm 22 that had that verse, and the Hebrew text in the Dead Sea Scrolls says, they pierced my hands and my feet. So that verified the New Testament reading of it. Is there any, any correlation, while you're speaking of the Dead Sea Scrolls, were they discovered the same year Israel came, became a nation? They were discovered around the year 1947. And 1948, so they were trying to get it because of the conflict and so on. This was able to get most of it before the borders were closed, but there were a couple of manuscripts they got after the Sixth Day War like the Temple manuscript. They only got that after 1967. We're going to take one more question because Arnold's almost out of water. <laughs> and as soon as the water's gone, we got to quit. Amen. All right. <laughs> the the up-and-coming regathering is it precipitated by... Uh, anti-Semitism that will cause the people to leave and go to Israel? That's, well, that's the major source for Zionism to begin with. But what, what will well, cause all Jews to return is that in the tribulation, they suffer not regional anti-Semitism, but worldwide anti-Semitism with a worldwide Nazi-like effort to try to annihilate all the Jews for reasons that we'll talk about in our second study tomorrow when we talk about the basis of the second coming of the Messiah. 
and that's when we'll see why anti-Semitism exists uh, theologically and biblically, and uh, why there's been this effort to destroy the Jews. But we'll talk about that tomorrow. But one of the worst countries is Iran. We'll talk about countries. And uh, uh, Iran definitely, not that 23 members of their, of, of their crew has the, the disease, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, virus. They claim that Israel spread the virus into them, you know, that kind of nonsense. <laughs> it's the old um, poisoning the wells criteria that the Jews were accused of. But, um, but anti-Semitism that break out in America was very, very moderate till recent years, and now you got people, guys going to synagogues, killing people, and so on. That's that's a new upsurge. And I think the um, internet has actually has spread that kind of anti-Semitism rather heavily, and then so on. Plus, you have the rise of replacement theology, and replacement theology. I won't say all replacement theologians are anti-Semitic. But as a system, it's, it's a theological anti-Semitism. It's a theological anti-Semitism. Well, thank you all for coming. I do want to mention one thing. Arnold talked about the fact that tomorrow we are going to, at the end of our conference, uh, take an offering. If you're in a position to help in that area and you would like to but are not going to be here tomorrow, you can still do that if you want to give a gift. There's a little box in the back there. Just be sure to make any checks payable to aerial ministries uh, so that we can definitely make a point of separating that offering from the regular offering that comes here to the church. We're going to start tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock, so hopefully you can go home, get adequate rest, and get a nice breakfast. We're going to have lunch here at the church for those of you who ordered it. Let's pray and ask God's blessing for safety. Thank you again, Father, for bringing us here together this evening. We pray now that you would give to us uh, your peace and your presence as we leave here. We pray for safety upon the highway. Give to us a good night of rest. Thank you for Arnold and Jacques and the ministries that you've called them to, the insights that you have granted to them by your spirit. And we pray that, again, we would be open to what you want to teach us. Dismiss us now with your rich blessing, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for coming. <laughs>